Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Bill Plotkin. I am delighted and overjoyed. Bill has written a, a, a number of books, all of which I've read. I'm sure there's some stuff he's written that I haven't read, but I um, am so drawn to uh, his energy and to what he writes about. He is most recently the author of The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. And he writes about and works with soul. He is a depth psychologist. He's a wilderness guide. He founded the Animus Institute, the Animus Valley Institute, which is in Western Colorado. Uh, he's led personally and through the Institute, thousands of women and men through nature-based initiatory passages. He previously wrote Soulcraft, uh, Nature and the Human Soul, uh, Wild Mind, and he is a thoughtful visionary around going back to things that uh, that have been true for millennia and exploring what it means to be um, not just people in this world, but souls in this world. And I could keep going, but I'm just going to stop and welcome Bill, welcome you to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much, Peter. Great to be here with you today. I'm really delighted. Uh, so I'm actually going to start with a poem that uh, that you started the book with, a Rilke poem. And just to set the tone for this, and, and maybe you can share a little bit about why you started the book with this. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Mm. Uh, I love this poem. So share with us uh, what led you to start the book with this poem. There's this ancient intuition um, we find in many cultures that each of us is born with a particular destiny or um, a purpose, an assignment from mystery Rilke in this poem uses the word God, but he, he doesn't have a particularly Christian understanding of that word. Um, but God, our mystery, our spirit, um, it's like we are each destined to take a certain place in the world. And, and, it's, and it's as if this poem evokes this sense that we are being ushered into life mm. by some great mystery. And... Um, we're coming from a, a different kind of place and we're being told, yeah, this life world is a pretty serious place. And 
I'm going to accompany you. Then you're going to be accompanied by the mystery. Um, and so it evokes this um, sense of soul that um, I've been working with for many years. As we get into this conversation, I'll say what I mean by soul. It's not what most people mean. So, um, but I started the book with this poem because I wanted to evoke that sense of of mystery that life is meant to be uh, even before we're born. And uh, adulthood is actually meant to be this um, remarkable, extraordinary, enchanted, and um, mystical way of, of serving the world. It's like meant to be a certain kind of an adventure. Right. And Rilke kind of um, implies that in this poem. So yeah. I want to get to your definition of soul, but I, I want to um, first uh, read a couple of things out loud that you wrote and and frame the conversation of soul with them. So I, you wrote this, and I really love it. I believe the root cause of the dire crises and challenges of our time, all of our current cascading environmental and cultural collapses, is a widespread failure in individual human development. I think that's mm -hmm. true and profound and simple. And I would love to uh, hear you say a word or two about it. Yeah, if we take that seriously, which, as you know, Peter, I have taken that seriously and started um, gathering all of the implications of that, it's profound about our history and our in contemporary cultures, in our case, of course, Western society, that something went wrong in, in a certain way um, a long, long time ago. And when we... You know, everybody who's alive now and, and paying attention in any way whatsoever knows we're in a time on this planet of multiple crises and the really severe crises. Sometimes we hear the phrase existential uh, crises, and there's even some really serious scientifically minded people who have some doubts about how much long we might even be around or just how severe the uh, ecological and societal, economic and so forth collapse might be. So, and there's lots of analyses about how we got into this dilemma. And they tend to be, you know, political or economic or, but people know the, the typical analyses that we get. But what's occurred to me over the years is that the root problem that's um, at the source of every single major global crisis we have now is a form of arrested human development in most cultures on the planet now. And so addressing that is maybe not the most urgent thing, because I agree with people who say, well, the most urgent thing is to save as much life as of as many species and as many habitats as possible uh, before it's too late. That, I agree, that's what's most urgent. But the foundational, if the foundational problem is a form of arrested human development, then we might as well get started uh, on that. What do you mean by arrested human development? Okay, one way to say it in general terms is um, in my second book, Nature and the Human Soul, I offer a nature-based developmental model of the stages of life that, uh, that humans would go through if we matured in the way that you might say we were designed to be as a species. And in that model, there's eight 
stages of life. There's two, generically speaking, two of childhood, two of adolescence, two of adulthood, and two of elderhood. And my observations over um, three decades or more is that something like 80% of contemporary humans, certainly in the Western world, get stuck in the third stage, which is early adolescence. I call it the oasis. But actually, Peter, it's, it's a little bit worse than that, that there's a healthy version of early adolescence, because that's a great stage to be in. And there's unhealthy versions of early adolescence. And it seems most contemporary humans get stuck in an unhealthy or an egocentric, I even use the word pathological version of early adolescence, and it's not their fault. It's, um, it's, it's what happens when we're raised and come into, into our life through cultures that don't support uh, natural human development or ecocentric, as I call it, or soul-centric human development anymore. And so when, when, when you think about human development, you're thinking along this model of these sort of eight stages. And, yeah. and, what, um, and, and the, the part of adolescence, the, the part of the developmental stage of unhealthy adolescence that most people in our cultures get stuck in is, is this, it's all about me, right? It's this sort of yeah. egocentric perspective. And one of the things that you've that you're writing and you're um, and and I've I've done uh, one of your programs and I've worked with someone from your organization, from Animus Valley Institute. Um, this 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 idea of nature centric, this idea that, like, forget about my own personal individual ego. The human ego, the sense that human beings are not the center of the world, and that, and that this this sort of world, ecologically centric view of the world, where you know the trees, in a sense, the animals, the bushes, the wind, has as much priority in on earth as we do. Could you speak? Mm -hmm. a, I, I may be um, mis uh, communicating this. I may, I may not be articulating this correctly, but it's, it's been profound for me to sort of walk in the woods with this sensibility. And mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear you probably say it more clearly or eloquently or correct me in terms of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, we're each born into this world with the understanding or intuition that we are in relationship and kinship with everything else. Like every, even in our contemporary societies, we see that in children, they talk with everything. And they, they feel a allurement toward everything and anything in the, in the world. And they are full of wonder. We, each one of us, are born just brimming over with wonder and curiosity about the world in the sense that, that we belong uh, in this larger world, this more than human world, and that everything is um, either a friend or at least really interesting. Uh, and then for most people, in most families in our society, we start losing that pretty soon, that, that sense of natural kinship with everything. And also, by the way, a natural sense of animism, that everything is alive, everything speaks, 
uh, everything breathes in some sense. And that's, um, so we, we tend to lose that. And that, among other things, and there's so many ways to go from here, but among other things, when we lose that sense of being at home in the more than human world, and, or sometimes called the natural world, when we lose that sense of being a belonging, of being at home, then there's a certain kind of anxiety or restlessness that, that goes right to our core. And even if we end up like in a really good um, primary relationship and we have a, a really tight social circle and we feel loved by the people in our lives, which is challenging enough accomplishment these days, but even if that's the case, um, people will often say, you know, I just don't feel as settled as I could be. I have this background anxiety, and I don't know why. And then we go to psychotherapists or psychiatrists, and we ask them, and they don't have a clue either, because they don't have that experience of being at home, in, in most of them, in the wild world. And so whatever their diagnosis will be for us will be wrong, and whatever their intervention will be won't help. Um, it's not that they won't help at all, but the, this this root problem that most contemporary humans have, which is we lost our um, bedrock sense of being at home in this larger world, this animate, more than human world. And so how do we regain relationship? Most people listening to this, some people would understand it. Most people listening to this, and I know for me, when I, I have a walk that I've been doing in, in the woods on a regular basis now that uh, because of the pandemic, I haven't been living in New York City for for some time. I'm living up in the upstate New York. And and there's this tree I pass. And it's like become my tree. Like I like the tree. I you know, it's like one of a million trees up here. But I, I and I talk to the tree sometimes. How do I not feel crazy talking to a tree? Because Having a relationship with everything around me is part of it. When you say that all of these things speak, all of these even inanimate objects, it's not just me speaking to an inanimate object, but it's it's like elements of the natural world speaking to me. Um, how do I listen for that? How do I, um, how do you, um, what's your advice for helping people become settled in the broader more than human world in a mm -hmm. way that, um, uh, connects us more deeply and also releases some of that anxiety. Yeah. Um, well, big framework here is um, we call this experience of like returning to Earth, of coming home again to the the greater Earth community. We call it ecological awakening or eco awakening. It's an experience that people, children raised in um, nature-based cultures, don't ever have to go through because they never lose it in the first place. Mm -hmm. But there's so many of us in the contemporary world who need to go through this experience. And here's the thing, Peter, is that it's actually remarkably easy uh, experience to evoke. Um, and the reason it's easy to evoke is because we are designed for that. We are designed with this, as I say, this intuitive, instinctive sense of being in kinship with everything else. But we've got to slow down enough. We've got to stop all the, that inner chatter for a little while and ideally be in some semi at least semi wild place it could be a backyard and we can it helps to to know that there's this possibility of awakening to the larger world again so something that happens in our 
programs for people who haven't already gone through Echo Awakening, they almost all people do on the first program, even if that wasn't the intention, particularly of that program, that um, our experiential immersions are usually at least five days long, sometimes longer, and they're held either in remote wild places, having gotten there with backpacks, or actually more typically at retreat centers that are on the edge of wild or semi-wild country. And there's all kinds of practices we suggest for people to go out on the land and to be with the wild world in various kinds of ways and to practice uh, a kind of empathy and intimacy and, and to use their imaginations because that's it's through our imaginations that we are able to um, converse, if you will, with other than humans. And by the way, in order to converse with a human, another human, we need our imaginations because we only get so much just through words. So imagination is an essential part of communication, even with humans. And it, it seems like imagination is something that is allowed for in children and quickly sort of schooled out of us very early on as um, I kind of want to use the word wasteful. Like it's, it's like not considered useful or valuable mm -hmm. to, um, to sort of settle into the imagination. It's not, you know, as opposed to achievement oriented. And this is especially true in organizations and in leadership roles and, you know, where people are taking very seriously the, the, um, the need to execute on a strategy and like all of the ways in which we think and talk. Um, uh, there's, uh, in fact, I, I, I'm going to read a quote uh, also uh, from the book, which is, uh, it's a Thomas Berry quote, I think. If we will the future effectively, it will be because the guidance and the powers of the earth have been communicated to us, not because we have determined the future of the earth simply with some rational faculty. And it, mm -hmm. it feels so critical and such a shift for most leaders who are used to willing their way to the future that they're creating. And I put myself in that category. Like I am used to saying, all right, what do I want to achieve? And let me look at it and create a plan for the year and make that happen and will my way into it. And what I would say is it does not address the issue that you're describing of the anxiety that is there. Like I actually think willing the future ineffectively, you know, with some rational faculty creates anxiety where none would have to exist. And I'm, I'm curious how to, uh, how to manage that tension, uh, which is, which I, you know, which I think delays the maturation that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In the contemporary world, we're told, we're led to believe that um, the way we find out about things, the, the scientific way to discover what's real is through thinking and perception, careful observation and thinking, which are two of our ways of knowing. But the other two, which tend to be suppressed in the contemporary societies, are feeling, including emotions, and imagination. And imagination has especially been suppressed. Like we say, you know, there's reality and then there's imagination. Um, and imagination takes us away from the truth, where, in fact, imagination is possibly our single most important human faculty, and we can't know the truth of anything 
without imagination. Um, but I'm not talking about shallow imagination, like pretending that something's the case that isn't, but our deep imagination that informs us about the reality of what's actually happening. So yes, the imagination is suppressed in educational systems, religious systems, mainstream ones anyways, and um, it's too often suppressed in the contemporary world. And that undermines our ability to even know and be in relationship with the world. Can you give us an example of deep imagination? Well, our dreams. Mm -hmm. The thing, what the word deep is doing there, it's saying it's our imagination that's not in control of our conscious minds, of our egos. Mm -hmm. So our dreams, um, our deep imagination, when we have um, images that come to us unbidden, sometimes we call them visions or revelations or intuitions, um, that's deep imagination. It's not something I don't say to myself, well, I can imagine an elephant in the room right now. It's not right. in control of the ego. I, I'm sort of curious because I, I struggle with this. How do I know to trust my deep enough? How do I know that my imagination is trustworthy because it's deep versus, you know, if I have an if I have an intuition of something, how do I discern whether that intuition is coming from deep imagination or a sort of superficial longing? Like they they both they both might come up in my mind and go, ooh, I'm sort of drawn to that. And how do I know that the the part of me that's drawn to that is is sort of like a deep intuitive non-ego part versus an ego drawn to that? Yeah, the answer is very simple, and it may be a little disappointing, um, but it's simple and it's true. And it's one word, practice. Huh. Yeah, by, by exercising our imagination, we get better at it. Uh, now, here's the thing, Peter, that in childhood, we're pretty darn good at it. And then again, we lose this, it's oppressed are suppressed by education and family dynamics and so forth. But one of the uh, tasks, developmental tasks in middle childhood is the exercise of our imagination. And in the progressive school systems, even in our country, that's one of the things that's considered a major principle. And children who go to schools or are raised by families where imagination is very much alive and it's exercised, is used every day get really good at it. They just get what a healthy culture would call normally good at it, nothing right. special. But we're normally um, suppressed. So as I get practice in this, as I get practice in this, and I and I want to get practice in this, and I have and I have an intuition, I mean, I'm assuming what you mean by practice is to slow down enough and be quiet enough, and maybe be in nature enough to to be open to the inkling and the intuition. And here's what I worry about. And I'm, I might just be uh, revealing myself as a very, you know, rational minded, uh, hard to access intuition person. But what I worry about is I'm going to go there and then I'm going to have an intuition. And if I don't know that it's a deep intuition, you know, that it's coming from this deep imagination place as opposed to a shallow imagination place, I'll, I'll, I'll assume that it's deep and I'll start and my practice will reinforce the pursuit of a shallow 
relationship to my imagination as opposed to a deep one. Does my question even make sense to you? It does, um, in in a way different than you would expect, probably. (laughs) Um, Because practice is something way more than that. So in my book, Wild Mind, um, which, among other things, introduces what I call the nature-based map of the human psyche, Mm -hmm. and included in that book are the four windows of knowing, which I mentioned before, thinking, um, perception, feeling, which includes emotions, and imagination. Um, and you'll see in that in that book, in the imagination chapter, that there's lots of ways, suggested ways to practice, to get to to cultivate your imagination. And you don't just do it by having images and so forth and trusting them or not. Um, that more commonly, you would take, um, you might take some courses in art or music or dance, any of the arts painting, any of them, and uh, or dream work, and you would practice exercising your imagination and enlivening your exercise, your imagination through these um, these practices or disciplines. Um, and, and then once you started getting good at it, then you would be using your imagination in these new kinds of ways um, every day, every moment in your life. And through this, you get better at it. Does it take years and years? No. After a few weeks, you would be able to start making these distinctions between deep imagination and shallow imagination. So let me say just a bit more here that might put some things in context. Um, in the contemporary world, especially the Western world, we've come to believe that, you've alluded to this yourself, Peter, that our rational minds, or sometimes we call it our strategic minds, that's what we're all about. And the, the strategic mind is actually very, very limited. Um, But it's essential. The strategic mind allows us to manifest or embody um, like creative projects or anything in life. We need our our strategic mind helps us answer the question, how do I do whatever's important for me to do? But the strategic mind is incredibly inept for answering the question, what in life is worth doing anyway? Mm -hmm. What is worth doing in life? I mean, you can get the contemporary world will give you all kinds of answers and almost always are really bad answers, really bad advice, that there's a part of our psyches that will tell us what is worth doing in life and what we in particular were designed, if you will, or born to do. And that's the facet of wholeness that is associated most closely with imagination. And I call it the muse. Sometimes I call it the inner beloved. Sometimes we call it the guide to soul. And because the guide to soul loves to go into the darkness, sometimes at Animus we call it the dark muse beloved, which which might be a little frightening to some people. I just love that. You can tell the way I said it, that um, this, the fruitful darkness is something that draws us in. Darkness is not bad. Light is not the only good thing. There's uh, a sacredness to darkness as much as there is yeah. to lightness. So let's just call that part of ourselves the muse. Um, but there's uh, there's something closely associated with the muse that knows even more deeply why we were born, and that's I simply call the soul. So the soul or the muse knows what's worth doing, knows knows what we are most drawn to, knows the deepest source of our love for the world. And then once that's alive in our consciousness, 
the strategic mind is the brilliant actor who is able with heads, head and hands to manifest that. But if the strategic mind is let loose, it's the early adolescent, egocentric, it's all about me, uh, strategic mind is let loose on the world, we, well, to put it really bluntly and briefly, we end up with the world we have right now hmm. that is destroying life on this planet. So, so define soul for us. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, I'm trained as, as a psychologist, and all of the definitions I've seen or the ways of talking about soul just never quite hit the mark for me at all. Um, there's something, they all seem to be missing something. And when religious people talk about soul, they mean something completely different than most psychologists do and totally different than what I do. Like in religion, we speak about soul as if it's some kind of object, maybe a metaphysical object. Maybe it comes into the body at some point before birth and maybe it leaves at, at the time of death. I don't mean anything like that. It's not, it's not exactly I'm against it. It's just I'm not on that map at all. So what finally occurred to me, Peter, is that soul, even the way most people use it, unbeknownst to them, that the word soul is not a psychological, not even a spiritual concept. It is an ecological concept. And that, when I got that intuition, everything broke open for me. And so I ended up defining soul as a thing's unique ecological niche, a thing's unique ecological niche. Everything has a soul in that mm -hmm. sense. And uh, for humans, it's our individual uh, ecological niche. And for our species, it's the human niche on this planet, which, you know, there's a lot of debate about people who are even willing to talk about that, what, what our species purpose might be on the planet. But so our unique ecological niche, and just to remind everyone, a niche is a set of relationships. So a thing's niche is, it's the combination or the overall bundle of its relationships with everything else in the world, in particular the things that's in its ecosystem. Um, so it's, so for me, soul is a relational concept, but you know, when almost anybody uses the word soul, they, at least connotatively, they mean it implies what gives me my greatest meaning or my greatest purpose, um, what brings me most alive. And if you think about it, the unique place we were meant to take in the larger world, which is our ecological niche, that it makes sense. That would give us our greatest meaning. If we're looking for a meaning in terms of a social role or a career or a job or a creative project, it's not going to go as deep as our psyche wants to go. That ideally, any job we have or any social role or any creative project is a way of embodying or manifesting that unique mystical place that we were born to take in the greater earth community, which, by the way, makes us, if it's true, it makes us exactly like everything else on the planet. Why would we be an exception to that? Everything else on the planet has a particular role it plays in its ecosystem. And through the, playing that role, it it gives away to the rest of life in its valley or wherever it is, and it uh, it gifts the world. It it not it it doesn't simply help sustain life in this place. It helps enhance life in this place. Everything, 
on this planet is meant to enhance life. We are not an exception. But we've got this dilemma then. Why is it that over the last few hundred years especially, but really for thousands of years, Western culture and many other cultures in the world actually, have not only not been enhancing life, have not only not been sustaining life, but have, has been destroying life. What is it about the human that we've lost our way? That's one of the questions I attempt to answer in this new book. Hi there. Thanks for listening. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is part one of two. If you enjoyed the episode, stay tuned for next week for the conclusion of the conversation. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.